You remember being the last one picked for a team in the schoolyard? Yeah. You remember how that felt? How about this? You remember how it felt when they argued about who would have to have you? Ever been in a, in a store, a retail store somewhere waiting to be served or a restaurant maybe? You walk in and someone better dressed than you walks in behind you and they get helped immediately and you're still standing there? How does that make you feel? Invisible? I'll tell you a little story about when I was a young pastor just a few years into the ministry here. We had a guest speaker come in from the Christian Civic League and he was a very recognizable type person, always in the newspaper, always in the news. And um, we had him come to uh, guest speak here. And uh, when he walked in the door out there, I walked over in that foyer and I shook hands with him and began a conversation with him. And he was just kind of looking around the room as he's talking to me, kind of a big guy. And um, after about five minutes of speaking with him, he looks at me and he says, oh, by the way, can you tell me where I can find the pastor? I said, that would be me. And he went, oh, 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 didn't get on. I pretty much felt invisible at that point. See, all you have to do is open your eyes and see plastered all over the screens and storefronts and billboards exactly what the world prefers today. They want beautiful people, people with great bodies and great hair and great complexions and great clothes and a great net worth. They want tall people. You say, why would he say that? Psychologists at Harvard, the University of Virginia and University of Washington created something called Project Implicit to develop hidden bias tests called Implicit Association test, IATs for short, to measure our unconscious biases. IATs measure your level of unconscious prejudice, and that's the kind of prejudice that you have that you're not even aware that you have. It affects the kinds of impressions and conclusions that you reach and I reach automatically without even thinking about it. In his book, Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking, author Malcolm Gladwell talks about the things that throw off our powers of rapid cognition. Here's an excerpt from that book. He says, what if the person that you're interviewing is tall? On a conscious level, I'm sure that all of us don't think that we treat people any differently from short people, tall people from short people. But there's plenty of evidence to suggest that height, particularly in men, does trigger a certain set of very positive, unconscious associations. Gladwell took a poll of about half of the companies on the Fortune 500 list, the largest corporations in the United States, asking each company questions about its leadership positions. The heads of these big companies are virtually all tall men. In the U.S. population, about 14.5% of all men are six feet or over. Just 14.5. I was going to do a little survey this morning and have you stand up if you were six feet and over. Just let's do that, just for the sake of it. If you're six feet or or over that, please stand up. 
Okay, so not a majority. All right, you can sit down. Among the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, the number who are CEOs that are over six feet, take a guess, 58%. Even more strikingly, in the general American population, 3.9% of adult men are six foot two or taller. Among my CEO samples, Gladwell says 30% were six foot two or taller of the CEOs. Of the tens of millions of American men under five foot six, a grand total of 10 in the test sample had reached the level of CEO, which says that being short is probably as much or more of a handicap to corporate success as being a woman or an African-American. Is this deliberate prejudice? Of course it isn't. Most of us, in ways that we are not entirely sure of or aware of, automatically associate leadership ability with imposing physical stature. We have a sense in our minds of what a leader is supposed to look like, and that stereotype is so powerful that when someone fits it, we simply become blind to other considerations. And this isn't confined to the corporate suite either. NYU professor Enoch Burton Gowen's study, published, get this, in 1915, revealed not just the difference between the heights of executives and average men, but also that bishops tended to be taller than preachers. It's no wonder that low self-esteem is such a problem in this world. The world plays favorites, and we become like the world, even in the church. In fact, ministry marketing strategies and mass communication tactics often mimic the patterns of the world, don't they? How many of you here actually remember the cheesy sci-fi show Lost in Space? Oh my goodness, look at all the hands. This church is graying. (laughs) It was one of my favorite shows when I was a young boy back in 1966. I was re-watching it one day, and the central idea of the episode, famous episode called The Golden Man was that preference based on outward appearance is dangerous. Not only dangerous, but it's lethal. There was a, an episode where the Robinsons come between a race of gold men and a race of green men, frog-like in appearance, who are at war. Way, 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 way low budget. Okay? <laughs> way low budget. Imagine Star Wars compared to this. So Penny meets one of these green aliens and befriends him. And outwardly, the golden man was very attractive and came with flattery, material gifts, and of course, bribes. And Dr. Smith was just sucked right in, of course, placing the others in grave danger. For in reality, the golden man was a vicious monster seeking to destroy them. Young Penny Robinson, however, was not deceived. She saw the inner beauty of the frog-like man. She befriended him, and he eventually saved the whole Robinson clan from doom. And for today's purposes, I'm particularly interested in a simple statement the disfigured frog-like man made exposing just how easily humans are deceived. He said, most of us, he wisely observed, are taken in by surface beauty and flattery, unquote. How true. 
Yet how sad it is that Christians have followed the world's lead and are similarly drawn away. Have you ever heard a sermon preached on favoritism? Think about that. I'm not sure I ever have until preparing this text. How many of you realize that showing partiality can actually be a sin? The Holy Spirit thought it serious enough to move James to write about it. So at this point in our series, we all know that James is no respecter of persons when it comes to addressing the hard issues of living out our faith on the front line. He's been pretty hardcore in putting our faith to the test thus far. And today's passage is no different. James is going to test our faith yet again by checking our attitude toward the rich and famous as well as our attitude toward the poor and nameless. James insists in this text today that favoritism is foreign to the faith. He's going to reveal the truth about partiality here in this text in three movements. He begins with a prohibition, then unveils an illustration and challenges us with a closing question concerning our practice of partiality. Turn in your Bibles to James 2 if you're not already there. Follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read the major section. James 2, 1 through 13. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made a distinction amongst yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder, Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a huge text. That's why I'm only taking the first four verses this morning. Let's look at the first First, the first verse. This is James's commanding prohibition. My brethren, don't hold your faith in glorious Lord, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. That's pretty clear, isn't it? This is the fourth time so far in this book where James refers to his readers as my brethren. He uses this kind of this grammatical structure to introduce new topics all through the, the letter. The basis of oneness in the family of God ought to rule out the necessity for James to give this rebuke. 
Amen? But just as we are commonly found in this practice of favoritism, so were the people of James's day. James isn't saying that we can't show honor to certain people when it is due or preference to one another when the situation calls for it, but rather he is saying that we should, it should never be done in a way that despises or marginalizes anyone else. James says partiality is prohibited. Favoritism is forbidden. He literally says here grammatically, stop showing favoritism while you're professing to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. That's important. That's important to know because the first thing he does is immediately point us to the central object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Notice that, first thing. And for your information, he makes a statement of clear deity here, in my opinion. He calls Jesus the glory. To you and I, it may seem like a veiled reference to something. But to the first century Jew to which James was writing, it was a blinding reference to the Shekinah glory, God himself. Do you know what the term glory means in the Bible? It means God's displayed excellence. Christ, James says, is God's displayed excellence. Christ is that glory of God. He is the displayed excellence of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says it this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is speaking of Jesus. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In John chapter 1, verses 1 and verse 14, you know these verses. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So how many of us, when we get together, actually acknowledge God's glory? How many of us can say with the psalmist, O Lord, I love the habitation of thy house and the place where your glory dwells? Do you know where that glory dwells? Turn around and look at the person next to you. If they're a Christian, the glory dwells in them. It dwells in each of us individually. And because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, the glory of Christ dwells in you. It also dwells in us as a corporate body, the Scripture says, the church. Paul called it the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Christ in you, the hope of glory in Colossians 1. So James says, if you're saying that you have faith in Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God, and are showing personal favoritism, there's a little bit of problem here. The problem is simply that partiality is not compatible with the character of who God is. And Christians who play favorites because of outward appearances, 
The word favoritism in this text literally means receiving of the face. Okay? They are an anomaly, James says, because God is not partial. Whether it's a Jew or a Gentile, whether it's someone who's rich or someone who's poor, someone who's well-dressed or someone who's ragged, the glory of God which resides on the inside of your brothers and sisters in faith is radiant because of who God is, not because how that person is outwardly adorned or what position that they hold in the church or in society. Romans chapter 2, verse 11 says, For there is no partiality with God. That's pretty clear too, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way, speaking out in context, in humility before God. Do not threaten them. Why? Since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with God. Jesus treated everyone impartially. He did not gravitate to the beautiful people as we do today. He taught truth to everyone. He served everyone. His ministry to people was not influenced either by who people were or what they thought. Luke chapter 20, verse 21 says, they they questioned Jesus saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God God in truth. Not partial to any. We know where this all stems from, right? Way back in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. He says, for the Lord sees not as man sees Because man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God hates partiality. If we say we adhere to the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of God, and yet continually form biased judgments on others based on external appearances or wealth or race or social status, etc., and completely ignore their inner worth, we have ceased to follow Christ when we do that. No person... Mark this now. No person is strong enough to carry both a cross and a prejudice at the same time. And my friends, when we have taken Christ out of that supreme place in our lives, it's as if the glory departs as Ezekiel once envisioned. The essence of what James is getting to is this. Don't try to mix your faith in Christ with the folly of favoritism. Because it doesn't work. It is a breach of the law of love, a breach which condemns your actions as sin under the Old Testament law and throws you onto Christ's mercy. That's what it says in verse 9 here. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And further, as verse 13 indicates, and we'll see this more the next time when I return, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. And unfortunately, I believe that the glory of the Lord has departed from many churches because of this sordid preoccupation. 
that we have, just like the world. Our churches are filled to the brim with middle class and upper class people. Where are the beggars and the poor? We're no different. We're those who don't necessarily fit the mold. Where are they? It's not just the poor that James is referring to here either. He uses a plural form of the word referring to acts of favoritism. Acts of favoritism, literally, which may take on many forms. Like the girl in youth group that everybody shuns. Or the boy in middle school that's a little quirky and a bit out of style and is never included in anything. James says, stop showing partiality. It's not of Christ. And again, as is most often found in James, it is a command. James has a lot of commands in his letter. And we all have to look into ourselves, deep down into our own souls to see how it applies to us. Do you ignore those who are not in the world's category of beautiful people? Do I? Do we gravitate toward those that we're comfortable with and stay away from those that make us a little uneasy? What about the handicapped? What about those with mental disabilities? What about those outside your little circle and my little circle? Ladies, have you been partial to one and ostracizing toward another. Men, have you done the same thing? Peter had to learn that early on in his ministry in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. God gave Peter a vision about this, about this big sheet coming down out of heaven with all kinds of unclean animals, and he said, eat. Peter says, no, I've never defiled myself. Peter began to speak in his response. I now realize, however, how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So here's the prohibition, according to James. Favoritism is forbidden. Why? Because it's incompatible with a professed faith in Christ. That's pretty easy, right? Take that one home and live it. Not so easy. But that's what he's saying. And so he uses a compelling illustration in verses 2 and 3. About the man who comes into the assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes. And he's probably a tall guy too. (laughs) And the poor man who comes in in dirty clothes. And you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes. And you give him the best seat of the house. And to the other guy, you give him the worst seat of the place. It's amazing how often we judge and get it wrong, isn't it? And quite often to our shame. I remember a story I heard once that is often comical in the movies when you see it in the movies, but it's not so laughable when it happens in reality. A deacon was briefed beforehand on what his role would be at an upcoming missionary banquet He was told to be sensitive to the fact that there would be guests from foreign countries who were not accustomed to American culture. Some of them didn't even speak the language. So during the banquet, the deacon found himself seated next to an African man who was hungrily devouring his portion of the meal, the chicken. Trying to think of some way to communicate with this man, the deacon leaned over and he said, chomp, chomp, good, huh? 
The man gazing back at the deacon simply replied, yeah, mm, good. A few moments later, the African man savored a delicious cup of coffee, and the deacon leaned over and commented, glug, glug, good, huh? The deacon's dismay when the keynote speaker for the evening was announced, it happened to be the African gentleman that was sitting next to him. The gentleman got up and he delivered a flawless message in Oxford-accented English. And upon concluding, he headed off the stage and he walked right toward the deacon, whose face was now aglow with red. And the speaker simply walked over, leaned into the deacon and said to him, blab, blab, good, huh? Uh, You ever get caught in a situation like that? I call this, verses 2 and 3, the case of the unjust usher. Here we have a classic case of preference and prejudice in action. Two men enter the church gathering. One is dressed to the nines, complete with expensive jewelry. Literally, it says, a gold-ringed man and fine clothes. In fact, the words here describe a quite luxurious fashion. You can read a a Keaton suit, K50, right? 60 grand for a suit like that today. One of the most expensive suits you can buy in the world today. It's probably had something to that effect on. Plus, he was gold ring. Now, gold rings were important distinguishing marks of a person's social status back then. Greeks and Romans were known to have worn them to extremes on every finger and thumb. One man was said to have sent a trophy to Carthage, three bushels of gold rings taken from the fingers of Roman knights slain in battle. One writer noted that one named Carinus wore six rings on each finger and never took them off at night or when he bathed. Frequent mention was made of their tremendous cost. They had rings of different sizes for summer and for winter. They even had shops where you could rent the jewelry. It's also noted that to wear rings on the right hand was a symbol of being effeminate, but they wore them profusely on their left. The clothing mentioned here was no less extravagant. The term fine means bright or shining clothes, that suit that I was talking about. Whatever and whoever this man was was not important. The point is, is that he was luxuriously adorned, indicating high social status and wealth. But here's an interesting side note. The Apostolic Constitutions, a fourth century set of eight volumes on pastoral and liturgical practices, warned Christians against wearing of fine clothing and rings since they were all considered signs of lasciviousness. Interesting how quickly they put that into writing. Well, this man was immediately treated well. After all, clothes makes a man, right? He's impressed with the outward appearances. So he ushers this man to the good seat. It says the best seat. And he says, please sit here. The usher was blinded by the bling. (laughs) Plain and simple. As someone put it, no concern is displayed to the rich man's clothing in Christ, however. Listen, friends, there's nothing wrong with treating people well and with respect and with honor. There is something wrong, however, with what happens next in this illustration. Visitor two was the exact opposite, a filthy beggar. 
His clothes were dirty and he probably smelled bad. He too was judged immediately by his outward appearance and treated accordingly. He was given two options according to the text. It says, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. In other words, stand out of the way or sit on the floor next to my footstool. In other words, he was sidelined. The thought is, stay out of the way. You can be here, just stay out of the way. And that, James says, is appalling. Again, no one cares whether or not he's clothed with humility or love or with the righteousness of Christ. The sole concern here seems to be that he was not like the rest of the crowd. He was not like them. Therefore, they honored the rich man and the other was discriminated against because of his poverty. Therein, James says, lies the sin. As was quoted earlier, the usher was totally taken by surface beauty. Totally taken in. Well, the world's standards are so vastly different than God's, aren't they? The world makes heroes of the rich and famous often simply because they are rich and famous. Can you say Kardashians? There is no question of God's hatred of that kind of perspective where we just make people rich and, you know, honored because they're rich and famous. He is no respecter of persons. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Leviticus 19, 15. Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and the powerful. Always judge people fairly. Who gets off with the most kinds of worst crimes? The people who can afford the best lawyers. And if there is any place in the world where that kind of treatment that is mentioned here should never take place, it's in the church. And James says that. And like any good preacher, after he brings the point home with an apt illustration, he applies it to people by personally asking the convicting question. Verse 4, have you not made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil motives? No, he literally calls the people two-faced. The word distinctions here or partial literally means divided against oneself or to face in two directions, to face both, face both ways. Seems like James makes a habit of this two-faced, two-souled, two-directions type of a thing, doesn't he? He's going to even mention it again in the future. In making a distinction between the rich and poor, they express doubt concerning the faith, which makes no such distinctions. God treats all according to his will and not according to the outward appearance. When we make distinctions like this and we treat people differently on the basis of their outward appearance, again, or by what they have in terms of influence, what they can do for us, or by what, you know, we have judged, James says, with evil motives. We become unjust 
judges. Deuteronomy 16, in verse, beginning in verse 18, talks about how judges are supposed to be chosen. You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all of your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. That was Israel's charge. Second Chronicles 19, the same way. In verse 4. Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people from Beersheba and to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord and the God of their fathers. And he appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, mark this, consider what you're doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. Are we unjust in our treatment of others? That's the question that James is asking. Have we been squeezed into the world's mold in terms of elevating the rich and the powerful and, the, and suppressing those less attractive outwardly. Why is it, I'll throw this out, that we immediately elevate famous sports figures and actors who come to Christ to the place of being a spokesperson? We put them on talk shows and we bring them to seminars and they haven't even had time yet to mature in the faith. When do you see a poor man's name given on a reference form? Or when do you see some modest but faithful saint from some out-of-the-way town on the cover of Christianity Today? Why won't big magazines publish an article written by a Christian who's never published anything before? I'm so thankful that the Lord doesn't judge according to the practice of this world, aren't you? When the Lord distributes rewards, I'm glad it won't be on the skewed basis of what the world employs. Because Jesus said, many who are first will be last, and the last first. James says, check your motives. Have you become an unjust judge? Are your motives evil? That's strong language to question whether your motive is evil. It's a convicting question. We must judge with righteous judgment, not by outward circumstances, because it is foolishness. It is inconsistent with a faith that is centered in Christ. In fact, Christ made a very important observation one day as he sat outside of a church service in Luke chapter 20. It wasn't really a church service, but we can make that application In Luke 20, in verse 45, it says, And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces, the chief seats in the synagogues and practice places places of honor at the banquets, 
who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all put out of their surplus into the offering. But she, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. See, most people apply that text to giving. I think Jesus is applying that text to motive. Christ is looking at motive. When he came to serve, Christ came as a poor man, didn't he? He had heavenly royalty, and he came as a poor man. When he chose his disciples, who did he choose? He chose mostly poor, uneducated men. They didn't have the acceptable seminary degrees, but they had teachable hearts. That's what Christ is interested in today. Somehow the world, as well as the church, has gotten this all twisted around. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 says that Jesus was rich, but for our sakes he became poor. See, he owned all the wealth of the universe, yet he had no place to lay his head in this life. He said that he was anointed to preach the gospel. To who? To the poor. To release the captives. To make the blind see and set free the downtrodden. He said, when you give a reception, invite the poor. The crippled, the lame, the blind. And then you'll be blessed. That's Luke 14, 13 and 14. James's convicting question is really, really pertinent. Are we without sin in these areas? I have to ask myself that question as well. We need to be honest about this. Our our Lord never sought the praises of men, especially not the rich men. Because he came to serve them all across the board. When he called men to follow him and serve him, he didn't choose them on the basis of their outward qualities. He didn't choose them on the basis of their prominent positions in society or their superior education or their ability to speak eloquently. He didn't choose necessarily the best and the brightest in the world's eyes. His disciples were considered nobodies. But neither did he exclusively choose those who were outwardly destitute either. He wasn't partial that way either. Who speaks with authority today in the average run-of-the-mill church? Who has the most to say about calling a new pastor in the church, in some churches? Who determines the decisions in most business meetings of a lot of churches? Who are the candidates for leadership in the average church today? Bright stars or bent nails, I ask you. We must truthfully admit that many times it's the ones with the power, it's the ones with the prestige, it's the ones that are most attractive and popular. There is no sin in accepting either the rich or the poor. There is also no sin, as I said, in showing respect to whom respect is due. God told us to honor leaders, prophets, kings, those sent by God 
in positions of authority. In 1 Peter 2, he says that. Honor the king. He didn't say whether he was a believer or not. However, there is sin when we base our treatment of others merely on their outward appearance and fail to judge with right motives. And we become like the world when we only want to be around so-called beautiful people. And in so doing, you know what? We might, be messing, we might be missing the greatest blessing the world has ever known or you have ever known or I have ever known. That's exactly what happened when Jesus came, wasn't it? Isaiah said of him in Isaiah 53 that he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, Isaiah said. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face from. He was despised and we did not esteem him at all. Can we honestly say that we would treat Jesus any differently today if he walked through that door? If Jesus walked into our assembly today... Would we even recognize him? How would we treat him? If he entered wearing the tunic of a Middle Eastern Jew, would we treat him as the Shekinah glory of God? As James identified him? Because that old cliche paragraph is really rings true speaking of Jesus he was born in an obscure village he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30 he then became an itinerant preacher he never held an office he never had a family of his own he never he never owned a house he didn't go to college he didn't have credentials except for himself All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as Jesus. Over 20 centuries have come and gone, and today he is still the central figure of the human race. And so I ask you, as we close this morning, is Jesus Christ the central figure of your life. If so, then we must act as he acts because he doesn't play favorites. Let's pray. Lord, your brother speaks a lot of truth. It's hard truth to hear. And yet you spoke in all those things to us. You lived all those things in front of us. And the history is documented. I pray our Father, Lord Jesus, in the power of your Holy Spirit, do the work that this word was sent out to do in each of us. For Jesus' sake I pray. Amen.